The goal of heart rate variability biofeedback is not necessarily to create a state of relaxation. It's actually engendered to increase what's called baroreflex sensitivity. And the baroreflex helps to modulate blood pressure and heart rate. The more sensitivity, the more precision and control you have over heart rate and blood pressure during those peak moments, not only the initial reaction, but the recovery. And so by increasing baroreflex sensitivity, we're gaining a more precise control over our stress response. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio, and welcome to today's episode with Dr. Leah Lagos, a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in health and performance psychology. And Leah is particularly well known for her pioneering work in HRV biofeedback. She treats a broad range of disorders and performance challenges. And the content that we spoke about today included strategies that are science-based that Leah recommends to reduce anxiety, boost resilience to adversity, and enhance health. Specifically, we talk about HRV, what it even means. We talk about the autonomic nervous system, how to regulate it and balance it optimally to maximize your performance, along with what a lot of the words you may hear as buzzwords in this space actually mean. Things like the vagus nerve, parasympathetic and sympathetic. We break all that down. She also breaks down her protocol called resonant breathing, which is a powerful way to improve the regulation of your nervous system and strike balance between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So I think you're going to love this podcast with Dr. Lagos. Enjoy. Dr. Leah Lagos, hopefully I got that right. Welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It's really, really great to have you here. I've been hearing about you and your work and the coaching and training that you do with high performers from all sorts of different people. Word on the street has been really strong about the impact you've been able to have on a number of different people. So I've been really excited to get under the hood with you and ask about what you do and whatnot. So I'm excited for this conversation. But just to kick us off, could you describe to folks how you describe what you do to people? If you're in an Uber or you're meeting <laughs> someone at a, at a dinner party or a virtual dinner party, which are more common these days. What do you generally say you do? I call myself a clinical and performance psychologist. And I explain that I treat the body first and then the mind. That my belief is that if we train the body, specifically the autonomic nervous system that navigates how we manage stress or do not, <laughs> is essential for training before we introduce psychological techniques. If we haven't trained the body the psychological techniques won't be received. So I 
love to introduce the concept that psychology is wonderful, but it alone is antiquated, that we're moving much more towards a dynamic mind and body paradigm where we treat both simultaneously. And I like to put that in the terms, it's a fancy scientific word, but psychophysiology, and it means mind and body together. And you mentioned body first, mind second, or, or that that generally tends to be the sequence. Is it fair to say that your approach is, you know, sort of a bottom-up approach to performance or well-being? Or a hybrid, depending on the person. Okay. And some people love to do simultaneous work, where we pair some mental work along with training the body. But I would emphasize how important it is to train the body either simultaneously or before you train the mind. It just expedites any of the psychological training by months and even years to be able to control things like how your heart reacts under pressure, how quickly your heart returns to baseline following a stressor. If you have control over those particular physiological reactions, you have more precision over what your mind is doing. And your mind is much more receptive to uh, cognitive techniques. So could you break down for folks or just describe at a broad level what you're referring to when you say train the body? Because a lot of people, I think, when, you know, what comes to mind there is exercise or you know, fitness and things like that. But I know there's a more nuanced description of the work that you do. So I'd love if you could break that down for folks. And obviously it relates to stress and heart rate variability in the autonomic nervous system. Sure. So my specialty is heart rate variability biofeedback for peak performance. And heart rate variability became a specialty that my, my clients <laughs> came in and said, this is dynamic. This is life-changing for us. They sent me their friends and family. And lo and behold, I've done it for 15 years and became a specialist in it by virtue of my clients. Um, I love it because it provides tangible ways to see how training your heart actually manifests in heart rhythms, even the parasympathetic, the breaking action of the system to be able to reset, put you in flow. And we even can track now the way that learning to increase heart rate variability and gaining control of your heart rhythms during stressful moments even impacts the brain, the diameter of the blood vessels, the prefrontal lobe and executive functioning. So my specialty is working with people from all avenues of peak performance, from performers on stage that you see on television, to people in the financial world, to Olympians, PGA Tour players, NBA players, on how to be able to perform at their innate potential, their full potential, particularly during stressful moments. And so HRV, heart rate variability, comes into play because it's an index of how the nervous system functions. It is an index of how adaptable you are. The larger the HRV, the more adaptable. But the really cool part, the part that I think is so fascinating, is it's also being understood as a measure that's reflected of blood flow to the brain. There is something called the neurovisceral integration theory that talks about the complex interaction between the heart and the brain. And when we make changes here, we also make changes here. So it becomes a really potent biohack for people to learn to control their thoughts, inhibit impulsivity, clear their mind, whether that's before making a, a really important decision or whether it has to do with turning their mind off so they can go to sleep. So there are many different health and performance avenues 
that this process can take clients through. That's really helpful. So you, ma- you mentioned there kind of as outcomes, controlling thoughts or the ability to, to regulate thoughts, inhibit impulses. Could you describe before we get into the specifics of, you know, what this training would look like with you and what it can look like for others at home? Can you give us a descriptive sense of, you know, a before and after for one of your clients, how they come in, what the challenges are that they're often dealing with, and then what this sort of physiological training can result in as an after state? Sure. So there are multiple reasons people come in, and it's not necessarily because they have a problem. It may be that they want to be able to more consistently perform at their true aptitude consistently. So it could be a tennis player preparing for the U.S. Open, wanting to be able to train their heart, which is a muscle, to respond in such a way that allows their whole body to be in an open, receptive, calm state during a pressure moment in tennis. It could be an attorney (laughs) preparing for a trial. It could be someone in the financial industry wanting to make objective decisions and, and using this process to actually be able to clear their mind, reduce impulsivity, and step back. So there's a lot of really interesting applications. It's also wonderful for people who are at home managing work and Zoom school with kids. That is an increasingly common stressor for men and women right now, <laughs> independent of location and or profession. So there's many different peak performance applications, but what is similar in all of those avenues is the desire and ability to perform in a stress state, not being stressed. So that can affect focus, that affects mood, that affects anxiety, that affects decision-making, and it can also manifest in how you empathize, perceive, and respond to others. So there are so many different avenues from health relationships to performance that increasing HRV and practicing heart rate variability biofeedback can transcend into. Could you describe a little more that point around, you know, the ability to be in a stress state yet perform effectively? I think what it kind of suggests is that, you know, stress is not bad. You can be in a state of high arousal and have that arousal serve your performance rather than overwhelm your system or, you know, result in increased impulsivity or any of those less desirable outcomes. That's right. And for many people, when they are in a stress state, more so than not, they go into what's called sympathetic dominance. That fight or flight system activates to protect them, to either fight or run and flee. But the problem is sometimes that fight or flight goes on when it's not truly a threat or the threat has disappeared and they're sustained in that state. They can't turn it off. So that's where this training can be really helpful so that stress doesn't control your response. You're in control of your response during stress. And I I talk to my clients a lot about upgrading from being a, a Volvo station wagon during stressful moments. They can get through it, they'll get there. There's nothing truly wrong or deficient to a Lamborghini where they can really navigate curves, unexpected uncertainties with precision and effortlessness. Mm -hmm. And what's really amazing, and my clients call this a life-changing process, is that ability is afforded by teaching your body how to let go through your heart rhythms. You expand your heart rate variability, 
But you also shift. I teach clients to be able to shift on demand from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state in a few breaths. And so we play games. Can you do it in 10 breaths? Can you do it in five breaths? I have some some clients who have been with me for years at this point and just love it. And, and we've gotten them down to one or less breaths. And it's it's so freeing for somebody and confidence producing to know they can manage how their entire system is going to activate in one or less breaths. Yeah, one of the quotes, I think it's attributable to Dr. Andrew Huberman at Stanford, who we do a little bit of work with, but he says that the autonomic nervous system shouldn't really be called the autonomic nervous system because of the fact that you actually can influence it and impact it, even though obviously it's described as a set of functions that are that are just occurring automatically or you know outside of our control or awareness. So I want to come back to breath because obviously that is, I think, one of the most powerful ways to regulate the nervous system. But I'd love to sort of walk through the different elements here and just describe what these systems are for people as well so that we can kind of get, get nomenclature clear. So could you describe to us, you know, what the autonomic nervous system is, what being in either a parasympathetic or a sympathetic state means, and then what heart rate variability is, and then let's talk about how to, you know, increase heart rate variability and, and some of the benefits to that. I love it. These words are close to my heart. <laughs> so I um, love to talk about it. Our autonomic nervous system is beyond just conscious activation. It's, it's meant and intended to protect us, to help us to adapt. And sometimes that adaptation means calming down and sometimes it means firing up. And so the autonomic nervous system has two components, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is our activating system. It is our system that incites us to fight or flee. And the parasympathetic, conversely, is our braking system. And our braking system isn't just for relaxation. It's to help us moderate our response to flexibly respond in the moment to a given situation. Okay? And in the 80s, there was a lot of focus on reducing sympathetic activation. And there's lots of ways to do that. And we still do that in 2021. Yoga, long walks, calming music. And with resonant frequency breathing through heart rate variability biofeedback, so I'll talk about both of those terms in a minute, we're actually shifting the autonomic nervous system from a dominant sympathetic state to reducing that sympathetic activation. And by week four of week 10, they're fairly balanced. And this is the fun part that the parasympathetic gets stronger. And so we're shifting to a parasympathetic dominant state. And boy, that is such a game changer for many, many people. I had an Olympian and, and she's given me permission to speak about her. She's appeared in media appearances with me. When she tried to make the Olympics the first time, she was a top athlete on a USA team. She didn't make the team because she couldn't control that sympathetic activation. And when the sympathetic nervous system was on fire during her Olympic trials, her performance was a fraction of what it could have been and should have been. So she came to me shortly before her four years later and came to me and said, I, I, I'm trying out again for the Olympics. I'm still a, a highly ranked member. I need to be able to perform at my peak. When I saw her initially, she was 
primarily sympathetic dominant, about 90% sympathetic activation. And I said, this is not going to work for you, despite all of your amazing talents. We have to turn this off so your talents can manifest and come through. And we worked together uh, for more than 10 weeks. She made the Olympic team and she actually set her personal record at the London Olympics. She brought me with her to London. We did her resonant frequency breathing on the race line. Oh, it was a beautiful moment. But she was able to perform at her highest potential at the Olympics. And why? She had the athletic skill the four years prior, but she was now able to let it manifest. And this is the story I see with so many individuals and why this can be such an important life-changing process because you have to train the body as well as the mind to be able to operate at your peak. Mm. I love the car analogy around the, the parasympathetic nervous system being more like the brake and the sympathetic nervous system being more like the accelerator, the revving the revving motion and, and that a lot of people, a lot of the clients we work with as well, who are, you know, high performing entrepreneurs and executives are just, they have their foot to the floor of, you know, the car of their nervous system and constant, you know, a constantly kind of revved up, activated state, which obviously, you know, does not serve you long term. So how does someone who's listening know if they are more sympathetic or parasympathetic dominant? How do you kind of get a sense for that. Maybe you can do so just subjectively and qualitatively, or maybe there's quantitative ways to determine that. Many of the common symptoms, restlessness, agitation, anxiety, some depression and inability to modulate mood at certain moments. A big one is sleep, difficulties with sleep, sleep onset, waking up, just not being in control of your sleep. But essentially what's happening when there's sympathetic activation is the nervous system is turning on, it's revving up. <laughs> and so it's going to manifest in, in different ways of the system, revving up, being agitated, being restless in, in many ways. A lot of my peak performers talk to me about their busy mind and how they're unable to turn it off during peak moments to have singular focus or to sleep. That's a really important one. And the other distinction that I think is really important is that while parasympathetic nervous system is the break, the goal of heart rate variability biofeedback is not necessarily to create a state of relaxation. It's actually engendered to increase what's called baroreflex sensitivity. And the baroreflex helps to modulate blood pressure and heart rate. The more sensitivity, the more precision and control you have over heart rate and blood pressure during those peak moments, not only the initial reaction, but the recovery. And so by increasing baroreflex sensitivity, we're gaining a more precise control over our stress response. And I had an NFL coach who was giving me permission to use his story minus his name come to me a few years ago. And he said, Doc, I need to work on being able to modulate my anger but I can't be so calm like I just came out of yoga class to make sure we don't do that. (laughs) And I said, I promise we won't do that. We're going to give you the ability to rev up when you want to rev up, let go when you want to let go, but you will be in control as opposed to the stress controlling you. By week seven, he came in, he said, Doc, I wasn't sure about your promise, but now I'm sure. Thank you. I have the screen door where I can screen out the impulse and decide what my effective response is before engaging in it. And that distinction is 
a really important one. Around week seven of the 10-week process, clients begin to experience the cognitive gains, the changes that are happening in the heart rhythms and what's called 0.1 hertz. It's a, it's a rhythm that when the heart rate and respiration rate coincide, it produces what's called 0.1 hertz and it travels through the vagus nerve and begins to impact the brain. My colleagues at Rutgers, Evgeny Vashilo and Bronya Vashilo, have studied the brain after resonant frequency breathing. And what's amazing is you start to see 0.1 hertz pop up all over the brain. So mm -hmm. there are specific elements that are transferred from the heart to the brain through this process and being able to screen out behaviors that you would engage in automatically and, and say, hmm, is that going to be effective is one of the products and particularly because this affects the prefrontal lobe. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that that I think is is sometimes a source of pushback, especially for high performers, is that if they are training to mitigate stress, that they're going to end up in this kind of soupy, sleepy, parasympathetic dominant state where they're just sort of vegetated. But one of the analogies we like to use when we're describing this to people is that it's about learning to live like a lion. You know, a lion is extremely relaxed and extremely calm and you know close to sleep a lot of the time but then they they can switch on when required and you know jack into a state of, of extreme peak performance and sprint to kill their prey or whatever it is and then very quickly after that they can you know wind straight back down and so i think kind of having that that mindset of it being about being able to oscillate up and down at will rather than just getting kind of jacked into this sort of like seven out of 10 stress state and being stuck in that all the time, never at peak and never at, never at a more relaxed state. I, I love that uh, analogy. And I, I think that oscillation is such a key component that, that one isn't just teaching to go into parasympathetic I also train teaching the client to go into sympathetic and then turning it off, which is similar to what you were describing. And that ability to oscillate between systems is key. And I love the line analogy. I use playing a violin, playing, you know, the frequencies of your autonomic nervous system like a violin, string to string, <laughs> and you're just effortlessly going back and forth. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, no, nice. I think for most people, though, usually the issue is not being able to oscillate up but as you were saying it's often for high performers being able to oscillate down from a more sympathetic dominant kind of activated state so coming back to heart rate variability then again maybe you could just describe a little more you know what hrv means why it's so important and then why we want it to be you know higher in general so there are multiple ways to measure hrv and the way that a clinician measures HRV is going to be different than, say, what you read on Aura, which is SCNN. Heart rate variability, essentially, in clinical terms, and it's really easy if, if you have any, there are several different types of equipment you can use to actually look at the heart rate oscillations. And, and for just a quick read, it can be really helpful to see because it's a visual that people can look at and see the actual changes in the oscillations of their heart rate, the up and down. So when we inhale, our heart rate goes up and when we exhale, it goes down. And a clinical measure of heart rate variability is to look at the peak to trough of these changes. So if you're using different devices, I don't endorse just one. There are lots of good ones 
Elite HRV, HRV for training. The Aura Ring now has a moment-by-moment where you can also look at heart rate oscillations. So there are different apps and modalities to look at this in real time. But essentially, we're looking at increasing those changes, the up and down, with larger variability being healthier, being more conducive to peak performance and restricted as being someone who's almost constricting their autonomic nervous system so that they aren't able to operate dynamically across the spectrum of their innate talents. Another way to measure HRV is SDNN, standard deviation of the mean, and and looking at the time intervals between heartbeats. So you can't take the aura ring and compare it to the clinical. You know, that would be confusing. You just have to know they're two different measures. You also, sometimes I warn against let's say, measuring SDNN on one device and then switching devices midway through that also measures SDNN because they have some variation between devices. So if you go through using the 10-week program and you're measuring using a device, I would stick with one device the whole way through and take the weekly mean HRV as opposed to just once. Take it four to five times that week, calculate the mean, and then look at the general direction between weeks one and 10. There's going to be some fluctuation. It's not going to just be up. Sleep affects HRV, alcohol affects HRV. There are different moderators, but overall you should see a general trend if you're going through the HRV training on your own or with a clinician that your HRV over a 10 week period between weeks one and 10 has generally gone up. Hey there, just going to interrupt. If you are a leader, a knowledge worker, or an entrepreneur, and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time, space, and freedom within your personal life, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com, pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We will be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So that's getmoreflow.com. So what are some of the parameters in terms of numbers that people would want to see their overall HRV fall within? And obviously it depends on things like age and stuff like that, but are there some ballpark ranges people should be? I am so careful about those numbers because people become alarmed when they look at their aura ring and they see a number like 12 and it says it should be for their age group in the 60s. So I would say everyone can optimize and there's no need to panic. <laughs> if you have lower HRV, it's, it's just a sign you're, you're doing a training that's helpful for you. With the clinical application, looking at the peak to trough, let's say your HRV is 60 and goes up to 65 and back to 60. You know, that's just from a clinical standpoint, a little bit on the lower end. I want to see a general HRV, a starting HRV of 10 or above, and with with the clinical peak to trough number, 
you know, but athletes come in and because they're endurance athletes, they may come in with an HRV, a peak to trough of 40. That's different, again, from the SDNN number on Aura. You can't compare the two. This is the max to min. But what I'm looking for with HRV training is doubling, tripling, quadrupling that number. And I don't set the expectation for everyone that they need to quadruple it. It, it just it depends on the person. It depends on a lot of different things. We're just looking to improve it. And more than anything is to improve the way you feel. So sometimes people get really attached to the numbers. And I warn against monitoring too much because guess what? That will counteract some of this whole physiological letting go process. If you're a numbers person, follow the numbers at, at weeks one, four, seven, and 10. So you get four weeks of numbers and then let them go on the others. Because if you're sitting there monitoring, that's an issue. You're not going to turn off that hypervigilance if you're constantly in a state of monitoring. Makes total sense. It's very easy to get overly attached to the numbers. I'm definitely very guilty of that one for sure. But so let's say you are talking to, you know, a high-performing executive or something like that who wants to double, triple, or even quadruple their HRV over the next six months or maybe even a year. What does that roadmap look like as far as recommendations top to bottom? Sure. So we start out with a 10-week process that is based on identifying resonant frequency, the rate of breathing that maximizes heart rate oscillations, and we identify what that rate is. And then we go through a process essentially for the first four weeks to engender the correct technique, breathing from the abdomen, (laughs) decelerating heart rate on the exhale, learning to feel and release, feel and release. We can create patterns, muscle patterns with our heart through practice. And for a lot of people, they feel emotion, but they've never taught their heart how to decelerate on the exhale to let it go. So those are the first four. And then we move from sessions five through 10 into my performance protocol on how to manage stress, reactivity, and recovery through specific heart rate patterns to prepare for adversity, to react with precision, and to let go quickly. And many of those are described in my book that just came out this year, Heart, Breath, Mind, available in most major bookstores and also via Amazon. Nice. Yeah, everyone should definitely check out your book, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. And beyond that, there is some fun when someone comes in and says to me, I want to just maximize my HRV and my quality of life as much as possible. Performance, health, relationships. There are so many different intersections as to what impacts someone's heart rate variability, sleep being a really important factor. A lot of people underestimate the importance of sleep and just getting 10 hours per night. 10 hours seems absolutely unattainable to some people, but I will tell you, it is one of the most effective performance-enhancing interventions known to man. (laughs) recovery and rest and then for people who are sleeping the number of hours they need to for their body to properly recover ensuring that they're having deep sleep and high recovery sleep and trying to figure out the pathways of what's obstructing it do they have poor sleep hygiene they're bringing their phone and sleeping with their phone under their pillow they're checking their phone throughout the night for messages and different data Do they not have a sleep routine? So those are some of the things we look into. On a more extreme, serious basis, sometimes I'll see certain 
heart rate patterns and that heart rate variability is not improving at the speed I want and their REM rate is low according to, let's say, the Oura Ring, and I'll refer them out for some sleep evaluation. Sleep apnea is very common and not well <laughs> understood by most people, and that can absolutely affect sleep. Other factors for improving HRV beyond just resonant frequency breathing, and resonant frequency breathing, again, is identifying the rate of breathing for you that maximizes heart rate oscillations. Everybody has a frequency that resonates with their nervous system and maximizes the increase of the heart rate on the inhale and the deceleration of the heart rate on the exhale. And we're looking to find that. Yeah, it's super interesting. I just want to hold on that point for a second. So with resonant frequency breathing, you're literally learning about what the optimal sort of rate and pace of breathing is for you as an individual to have your HRV be as high as possible and have your nervous system be as well regulated as possible. Is that, is that essentially? That's right. Yeah. Which is kind of a, for a lot of people, I think that notion is just very novel and radical. The fact that there's a rate or way of breathing that you individually need to identify and then train and kind of habitualize to in order to have your system function optimally. It's, it's, you know, it's not something that that many people talk about. So it's really fascinating because there are other implications beyond that, that people can actually affect other people's nervous systems by breathing at the rate that resonates with their nervous system and actually creates an energy external to them. It's one thing that I do with people in leadership roles is, is we hone the ability to decrease reactivity or at least be in control of the reactivity, recover faster. And the third piece is learning to teach them how to shift their physiology, not only to shift their mental state, but to shift someone else's physiology. So I have a wild story to tell you just to give that some validity. But with my book, I had eight publishers that I met with to talk about my book and have them bid on who, who purchases the book. And during that, I told my agent that I was going to test this hypothesis that one could shift their physiology to shift someone else. And so in every meeting, there would be someone that would ask a lot of questions, maybe wasn't quite sure that they understood heart rate variability biofeedback, or I'd, I'd have an aficionado and then someone with lots of questions. So when talking to them, I would send them lots of warm energy, even love. And it's really interesting you would see their physiology change. But what is wild is I ranked the resonance I felt with each group in order. I put a number ranking on it. My agent called me because I gave her, we, I talked about the experiment before I did it, and I gave her the ranking. She said, this is wild. You'll never believe this. It's something I've never seen. She said, you had eight out of eight book offers, and they were in order of resonance. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, I, oh, so I believe that the resonance we create internally also affects people's receptivity to our ideas, our ability to interact in meaningful ways, to connect, to even persuade. So there are variations. The first level is 10 weeks learning to control your autonomic nervous system during stressful moments. But then there's a whole nother level where you can use resonance to connect more deeply to other people. It's huge on the leadership point as well, because 
so much of leadership is just impulse control and, you know, resisting the spark of emotion that comes up when, you know, a terrible piece of work or something has been created by an employee and rather than just, you know, slamming them, breathing and being able to provide really constructive feedback that, you know, builds them back up and results in better, you know, output in the future or whatever. So it's yeah, hugely important, I think, this stuff for for leaders. So back to you mentioned breath and resonant breathing was, was kind of the first big way to elevate HRV and then sleep. With respect to resonant breathing, what are some ways if someone doesn't, let's say, isn't able to work with someone like yourself or just wants to start doing this at home? What are what are some of the ways to begin resonant breathing or just to use the breath to regulate the nervous system and elevate HRV? A general rate that is beneficial for everybody is six breaths per minute. It's not everyone's resonant frequency, but it's not going to hurt you, and it will give you some percentage of the benefits even without identifying resonant frequency. Identifying the specific rate is even better. Um, and But if you want to just jump in and dive in, you don't have a clinician, you don't have the feedback device, you can just download. There are several free breath pacers, or they're $1.99 each. Breathe with a plus sign. Eye breathing, awesome breathing are all some simple breath pacers. No feedback, but you can just set it to the rate of 6.0, breathing at four seconds, inhale, six seconds, exhale, and making the commitment to 20 minutes twice a day. A lot of clinicians will say, oh, you, you just have to do five minutes, 10 minutes. I have studied this for 15 years. To engender a reflex where the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in during moments of stress without conscious activation. It's 20 minutes twice a day for 10 weeks. And you will feel it. It will be substantial. But there is no shorter route. For some people, that's too much to take on initially. So an onboarding route would be to start at 5, work your way up to 10, 15. By week 4, you're at 20. You will still gain significant benefits if by week four you're at 20 minutes twice a day and you do that through 10 weeks. Using your breath pacer, you don't have any outside uh, guidance, but you're simply just training your autonomic nervous system to breathe at that six breaths per minute and that breathing transcends over into an automated response. You're training your heart, which is a muscle, and I use the paradigm you're going to the U.S. Open, you train your tennis serve 10,000 times so that you don't have to think about it during game day. And to some respect, you're doing the same thing with your autonomic nervous system. You're training your parasympathetic to kick in without you having to think about it. It knows what to do and you have the tools. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to your question about increasing HRV in other ways. We talked about sleep, alcohol use for some people doesn't have a huge impact on heart rate variability, but for others, it's devastating. <laughs> so having some type of monitor can be really helpful in discerning your own sensitivity to alcohol. Um, the aura ring picks it up. It will tell you you'll have a, a drop, a, a significant drop the night you drink alcohol. There are other ways to monitor another devices, but that's just one. The interesting other interesting one, two pieces that people don't think about that I've seen impact heart rate variability are who they choose as partners. And it's really, really interesting. I think it's the secret to really enduring supportive relationships is having a partner that knows how to put you in parasympathetic dominance. And I will tell you, I've seen many people get married 
through the process. They start with me and they're single. And by the end, they're in a relationship or engaged or on their way to be married in a very short period of time. And it just makes you wonder <laughs> what happens oh, when, when yeah, people that. are open and receptive. But I've also seen people bring in their spouses or people that they're considering being long-term partners and go into a parasympathetic state as soon as that person walks into the room. And it's fascinating. John Gottman is considered a love psychologist mm -hmm. and has written lots of books about marriage and talks about this fascinating piece that the most successful partnerships, each partner knows how to turn off the sympathetic nervous system of their partner during critical moments and put them in a parasympathetic state. Isn't that fascinating? Super interesting. And I bet going back to the leadership point, that if you were to run a similar study on the best leaders, I bet there's an element of state management that is occurring with respect to the leader, to the, you know, to the employee or the person being led there as well, where the leader is able to kind of downregulate the team and create a more receptive, calm state of equilibrium for the team as well. It's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about being able to kind of, you know, assist with the regulation of other people's states around you for their well-being and your well-being and i just want to i want to pull back to the breath piece for one second just to underscore that protocol you mentioned because i think it's really really helpful for people so 20 minutes two times a day six breaths per minute and what was the exhale inhale count there and i know you can use the breath plus app the eye breathing app another app actually is called state as well just state it doesn't necessarily do this protocol but it's got some other interesting breathing protocols but yeah what was the exhale inhale count there four seconds in six seconds out not holding breath some people though really want to hold their breath a little bit and you can bump it up to 0.5 if you're someone that really needs a little breath holding but the four in six out can just create a, a really wonderful resonance throughout the body it's it's well tested tried and true okay great that, okay, that's that's super helpful, I think. So 20 minutes twice a day, six breaths a minute, and then four in, six out, which obviously adds up to, to the minute. So, okay, that's, that's super helpful. And then to pull us back to sleep for a second, one of the things we've noticed with a number of our clients as well, and you alluded briefly to this, is, is really low REM in certain instances, especially as tracked by the Aura Ring. Have you got any idea of what is giving rise to that and whether there's, you know, a relationship there between HRV and that kind of really low REM and what to do if you're finding that you've got very low REM? So lots of different things and it's not a one fits all algorithm. There's a bit of try and see what works for you. But increasing heart rate variability helps to shut off that busy brain. And for some people, that brain is always on. And so to turn it off at night, just their brain isn't trained to do it. And so the brain wants to turn back on and it prohibits them from really optimizing their REM. Their REM is very low. It's the hypervigilance that they have during the day also persists throughout the night. So the HRV becomes a process that I have the client practice in the morning and then right before bed to help put them in a state of resonance before they fall asleep. And some people find that to be very helpful to integrate it as part of their sleep routine. Another is if they're waking up in the middle of the night, I ask them to get out of bed if they're, in, if they're awake for more than five minutes. So they're not attaching or associating the bed with busy brain. They get out of bed, they breathe until they're tired and they come back in. Also, 
alcohol, again, can be one of the substances that I've seen interfere with REM sleep and trying to go a two-week period without any alcohol to see if that is a moderator or an influence. And then a last piece is, you know, there are we're in a world now where people are on Zoom 10 hours a day <laughs> and they're not shutting off from screen time. So it's another piece that I advise. We try a week where they shut off their screens by a certain time or we have a maximum screen time per day or both. And we've had some really powerful effects on REM mm -hmm. by managing screen time. The last one is, you know, there are people that live their lives without a lunch break. They're on, they're on, they're on. They're highly successful, very busy, very productive. But the problem is there's no recovery in their day. And so sometimes I'll work with people to implement systematic recoveries where they have to take a 15-minute walk every three hours. Or, you know, we talk about what what the recovery is. It's not necessarily a walk. Maybe it's a breathing practice. Maybe it's a call with a loved one. Maybe it's watching a comedy with a friend and laughing, which also provides a parasympathetic state. But nevertheless, inserting greater recovery during the day can also lead to greater recovery during the night. What you're doing during the day is teaching your brain to shut off. That makes a ton of sense. And the point you made, I think, about the bed itself is actually really, really important. I know that one of the biggest drivers of insomnia is actually just classical conditioning, where the bed becomes a stimulus for anxiety and the fear and discomfort around not being able to fall asleep. And that conditioned response gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So that as soon as you lie down into the bed, that response gets activated, you can't fall asleep. So I think that point of basically maximizing the percentage of time in the bed asleep and minimizing anything else in literally in the bed is really, really important. And as you said, kind of getting up, then getting your nervous system to where it should be for sleep and then getting in the bed rather than lying in bed in a kind of a frazzled, activated state. And then on the recovery note as well, that's, yeah, I think that's a really important point. And one of the things we, we try and underscore for people as well is that recovery is distinct from relaxation and recovery, you know, is often relaxing, but it's not, it's not about it feeling relaxing. It's about it kind of serving a, a function of sort of parasympathetic activation. So I'd love to, I want to ask you one question about, about trauma and then touch on flow. And all of this comes back to the work we do with peak performance and flow, I think in, in many, many respects. But have you seen in general a decrease in overall long-term HRV if someone has experienced incidents of trauma or PTSD? And if so, are there any ways that you recommend folks who, who have, you know, very low HRV or who have experienced trauma kind of work around that and elevate their HRV over the longer term? Yeah, it's, it's a, oh, I love this question. And it's a really profound one that can change lives. Yes, People with PTSD, and it's not necessarily active PTSD, it can emerge or manifest as, as heightened cardiovascular reactivity to triggers that are somewhat reminiscent of the traumatic experience, whether it was feeling out of control or feeling they couldn't trust somebody and, and now in their day-to-day -day life they can't trust somebody. So there are different ways it manifests, but essentially there's heightened cardiovascular reactivity in those moments. And the baseline HRV is often restricted in 
the peak to trough range of five or under. And what's really fascinating, I call this and I talk about this in my book, is that reliably people with trauma have a breakthrough between weeks three and four, where in some way, shape or form, that trauma comes up and it's as if the heart's trying to clear it. And it's really fascinating because it coincides with the time at week four, if you're really doing the 20 minutes twice a day of breathing practice, we can measure significant baroreflex gain. That baroreflex sensitivity is significantly higher. And so what's really interesting is the trauma piece seems to emerge at the same time. It's as if the heart says, I'm stronger, I'm going to bring this up because I I can deal with it and I'm going to try and release it. And it's a really important moment for many people. If you're working with a clinician, please bring it up with the clinician openly. Sometimes it'll come up in the form of tears, just crying out of the blue. It could come up as anger. It could come up as a flood of feelings, just even on your own. It generally happens in the presence of another, of someone else you trust, whether it's a clinician or a partner. But nevertheless, it generally comes up between week three or four. The trauma wants to manifest and clear. And if that happens, you see something that's really fascinating and is called what I refer to as a somatic release. You see the HRV just increase as if there's a breakthrough in the autonomic nervous system, if it's dealt with correctly, meaning there's someone else that helps you just listen and empathically supports And you just explain what you're feeling. You don't have to relive the trauma. You just, you embrace the feeling and allow that feeling to flow through you. It's powerful. And it's not a product of conscious thinking. It is the autonomic nervous system almost purging an experience that's been locked inside and letting it go. And it's amazing when you see those heart rate variability gains. So yes, I've seen it with many clients. Many clients have have told me it's that moment for them out of this process that was in their repertoire of experiences, one of the most powerful. It happens, I would say, one out of every eight people. So it's fairly common. That's And if it does happen, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's your body truly trying to let go of something that was imbalancing the autonomic nervous system. In terms of actual trauma work, I believe that trauma lives in our body just as much, if not more, than our head. And by actually training our body through specific triggers and to let go, we can repattern our trauma response and that it is much more effective for some people than just the general CBT or talk therapy, that you're actually working through the patterning, the physiological immobilization that you you felt in teaching your body a new pattern and pathways for responding. And that's all through heart rhythms. And, and we do do some of that work through my office. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a bottom-up approach on the trauma side is just so important because, you know, in terms of like psychoanalysis, you can kind of, you can talk about why something has happened or what the narrative is all day, but until you actually begin to intervene at the level of this sort of dysregulated stress response that's happening as a result of the trauma, you know, things aren't going to necessarily make much of a difference even if you've you know learned conceptually a lot about the story or the context within which the trauma occurred and then on the note of flow so heart rate variability and just 
nervous system regulation has all sorts of different intersections and overlap with flow. One of the things that we're wanting to do long-term with the Flow Research Collective is basically build a biophysical flow detector of some kind that essentially can identify the physiological correlates to a flow state and then enable us to, you know, train up a flow state through some form of biofeedback. And one of the, one of the indicators we've been looking at is heart rate variability. So first question of flow is just, I'm curious whether you've seen that there are relationships between flow and HRV or any other physiological data and flow that relates to that? Sure. Um, that point one hertz resonance, it, it's identifiable as a heart frequency, and there are many different systems that you can monitor it, is what I would call the biomarker within the heart of the flow state that also impacts the mind. I wouldn't say there's a specific number for HRV that's ubiquitous, that everyone achieves flow if they have a certain amount of HRV. HRV allows you the flexibility to experience flow more consistently and 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 manifest your innate potential. But that 0.1 hertz is the resonance throughout the body, I believe, is what you're looking for in terms of identifying whether someone is in flow. It's resonance. And the resonance travels from the heart all the way through the vagus nerve up to the brain and, and down through the gut. So everywhere the vagus nerve goes, all of these different systems are innervated and affected. It's interesting, yeah. And I think one of the big triggers for flow is the challenge skills balance, which says basically that you, you are primed for flow when the challenge of the task you're doing just slightly outstrips your existing skill level. If it outstrips it too far, you get pushed into a state of anxiety and overwhelm. If it's too low, you're underwhelmed and bored of the task just feels mundane. And an element of, of challenge or perceived challenge is, I think, just the state that the nervous system is in. So if the nervous system is kind of sympathetic dominant and activated and, and someone is just in a fight or flight state, the perceived challenge is going to be much higher than if someone feels fully calm, even though the task at hand is identical. You know, it's, in other words, it's harder to give a speech while you're quivering and can barely breathe versus giving the exact same speech to the same audience size whilst calm. And so I think there's scope there through this sort of heart rate variability training to, to tune the challenge skills balance and increase the likelihood with which you can access flow as well, potentially. Yeah, and it's interesting because you begin to pick up themes from people's heart rate patterns as they're trying to achieve flow, that there's no external pressure in the environment that you're training them, and yet they're not able to achieve flow. Why is that? Are they someone who is trying to be in control and that need to be in control they can't let go of? Is it obstructing their ability to achieve resonance while they're breathing at their resonant frequency? Sometimes I see, especially with high performers, really incredible performers, the amount of pressure they put on themselves, but it kicks them out of flow <laughs> as opposed to enhancing their performance. So their thought that they have to put pressure on to be a better leader, a better president or CEO actually interrupts their natural affinities and innate abilities. So then we work on on operating with authenticity and just being open and accepting them as opposed to trying so hard and and you see the heart rhythms maximize. So it's really interesting to to start to look at the rhythms to identify themes that are happening internally that in performance situations keep them out of flow. Mm, yeah, one of the ways 
that's referred to in sports psychology as having either an ego orientation or a task orientation where with the ego orientation being a focus on the fact that you are being perceived by others doing a certain thing and task orientation just being awareness of you know the task and engaging with the task itself so that's interesting well Leah, anything else that you'd like to share with folks around your work or heart rate variability or flow or training the autonomic nervous system or any of these great topics yeah you know this method is incredible and life-changing for so many people and has many different variations but i believe we as a civilization as a humankind need this kind of training more and more given the uncertainty of the world today and there's such a beauty too in people being connected not only psychologically but physiologically to each other and it's wild when teams unite to do this kind of training to see their relationships in hands the empathy the intuitiveness and my overarching dream in this lifetime is to bring this to as many people as possible so we can all be connected and united and and helping each other so physiological connectedness i think is a future state (laughs) that i'm hopeful for for all of us to achieve great well listen thank you so much for coming on it's been really great to chat with you about this hopefully we'll have many more i want to uh, underscore again for folks the protocol that you recommend, because I think people will find it really impactful if they actually do it, which is, again, the 20 minutes twice a day, six breaths a minute, and the four-second inhale, six-second exhale as well. So I'm really curious for folks to actually experiment with that and run that and see how, how things shift for them. And then I really strongly recommend everyone checking your book out, Heart, Breath, Mind, Train Your Heart to Conquer Stress and Achieve Success. And where can folks learn more about your work in general? Do you want to mention maybe your, your website or if you have a newsletter? Sure. My website is Dr. D-R Leah, L-E-A-H, Lagos, L-A-G-O-S dot com. Great. All righty. Well, thanks so much, Leah. All the best. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, Please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.